You're listening to the Pay Friends Community Church Podcast, recorded March 8th, 2015. Sushi, Counseling, and Widows. Well, I don't know if you guys saw on the news this week, but the world's oldest woman had a birthday. And she turned 117 years old. And in this article, it highlights this fact that that she has lived across three centuries. She was born in 1898, so she caught the tail end of the 19th century and lived through the 20th century. And here she is in the 21st century. And one of the questions that they asked her, and I'm sure you could probably guess one of the questions they asked her was, how is it that you have lived so long? What has attributed to such a long and healthy life? And I thought her answers were really profound. I want to share them with you. The first thing was this. One of the things she attributes her long life to was eating good sushi. I can identify with that. I love sushi. Hopefully, I'm going to live a long life. And the second thing she attributed to a long life was sleep. She always made sure she got eight hours of sleep. See, there are some things we like learning and finding out what's the secret or what's behind it. But there are also times when we don't want to know what's really behind it. And sometimes we just like treating symptoms. A few years ago, I was um, a worship pastor at a church, and the senior pastor had just resigned, and me and some of the staff were responsible for the, the running of the church weekly and taking care of all the preaching responsibilities and, uh, and, and leading the staff. And, and so in this interim time, often what happens when there's an interim at a church, when they hire the new pastor, the staff or those who are functioning as interims then leave. And so um, after being there for a few years um, and during that interim time, it was time for me to move on. And God graciously provided um, a place for my family and I to serve in ministry. And so we packed up our bags and we left and we we started serving at this other church where I was responsible for this church plant and uh, pastoring that and, and working with uh, our young adults and youth and college age. And as I was there, I got to know this couple who uh, who had just gotten married, and uh, they were they were serving on different uh, committees. They were uh, helping us lead worship, and they were helping in youth ministry. They were just a great couple, and I enjoyed their friendship, and we grew really close. And then I remember one Sunday, um, I noticed that they weren't there, and they're usually helping leading worship or running sound or um, and serving in some capacity, and they weren't there. And I get this text right after I finish my sermon saying, we can't go to this church anymore. We're leaving. It's not you, but we just need to go somewhere where we can be ministered to. My heart was crushed. Right during that time, I was taking a class in seminary, and it was on pastoral counseling. And one of the things they had us do was go and meet with a pastoral counselor. Yes, pastors need counseling. Sometimes I think we need it more uh, than anybody else. And so we, uh, so the next day after that had happened, I was scheduled to meet with this pastoral counselor. And he started talking to me. Um, I started sharing with him about things that were going on. And I shared him about this couple that had left and the brokenness that I felt from it. I was crushed. 
And then as he started digging deeper and asking questions, one of the things that he pulled out of me that I didn't realize was there underneath the surface was that I had not grieved my lost relationships at the past church I was serving at. I had grown really close to uh, the youth pastor there, and uh, I was uh, we shared an office together. And, and, and one of the things I realized, I had not grieved those lost relationships. And as a result, one of the ways um, that I was uh, living that out, one of the things that was happening underneath is that I was not allowing people to get close to me is that I was keeping a wall between my relationships. And so this couple, which I felt like I had built a close relationship to and I had, was just another um, another hurt, another pain. And one of the things that the counselor pointed out to me is to, is to help me to see that one of the things that could happen to me is I could start to build even more walls from those brokenness in those relationships. And not allowing people to get to know me and me building a wall and not getting to get to know them. You see, sometimes we are really good at pointing out problems and coming up with with solutions to address those problems. But those problems we're actually addressing are just symptoms of something that is much deeper. Uh, I was talking with Sue the other day who is uh, a teacher at our local elementary school here. And, and she was telling me about the anti-bullying campaigns, right? I'm sure you've seen these on the news where, where they're trying to encourage kids to be nice to one another and don't bully and it's not a good thing to do. But one of the things I think we all know, whether you're a Christian or not, is that bullying, that's, that's a symptom of something much deeper. There's something else going on underneath the surface that has to do with those relationships and, and how kids are brought up and maybe those kids have been picked on in their lives i would probably even argue that many of our laws that we create are about managing symptoms rather than dealing with the heart issue one of the ways that we see symptoms of a culture is based on what we read um so so i was looking up some of the what what is what are the genres that people are into these days when they when they choose to read a book and so the top five the fifth one is horror People like being scared. I, you know, I can identify with that. I don't know if I like being scared, but I understand people who do. That's all well and good. And then the fourth genre of books was science fiction. People love their science fiction and their space stories. That's great. I love Star Wars. The third genre that people are reading are religious or self-help. People are looking for help. People realize there's something going on in their lives, and, they're, and they'll read, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. The second genre that people are reading are crime and mystery. People like their crime and mystery books. And I'm guessing you could probably figure out what is number one. The number one genre of book that people are reading are romance and erotica. You see, the the popularity of a book like Fifty Shades of Grey is a symptom, isn't it? It's a symptom of our culture's distorted view of sexuality and intimacy. You see, the problem is not that movies like Fifty Shades of Grey are made. The issue is our view of intimacy and sexuality has gone off course from what God's original design for intimacy in our relationships. I once heard of a pastor who was struggling in his ministry at his church. There was an elder who was dissatisfied with his preaching. 
and a family uh, had decided they were going to leave because their lives were just too busy and church was the easy thing to cut out. His wife was upset at him. The, the pastor's wife was upset at him um, because he had spent every night that week at a meeting. At the end of the week, tired and exhausted and feeling as though he had not accomplished a single thing, he went to his garage, grabbed a, a paintbrush and a roller and a can of paint and began painting a wall in the church that desperately needed painting. And after he painted the wall, he stepped back and he looked and he thought to himself, I have accomplished something this week. You see, sometimes one of the ways that we manage symptoms, things that are going on, is we find ways to distract us, right? I, I find in myself that sometimes when I am stressed that I don't pay attention to what I'm eating, and I'll just eat to manage stress. Or, or how many of you are guilty or maybe of shopping? I would shop, but I just don't have money to, so that kind of cures that. Um, or maybe, maybe we sit and we watch too much TV to not deal with things that are going on, or we just lie in bed and we sleep a lot. These are all ways that we just try to manage stress, and the solution is not to shop more, to eat less, watch less TV, or stop sleeping, but the issue is to wrestle with how we manage and deal with stress. Today, we're going to talk about a story in Acts chapter 6, and we're going to look at how the disciples see the thing behind the thing. They realize that what's happening is just a symptom of something deeper. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 says this. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against their Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So we get this picture that good stuff is happening, growth, and new people are coming. Now, I think Luke does puts this phrase in there on purpose, because if you remember last week, at the end of Acts chapter 5, the disciples are flogged um, because of their faith, because they are testifying that Jesus has risen, he is new life, and so they are beaten in submission. And the next line of the next chapter is about how the number of people are increasing despite the fact that they are being beaten. Now notice that the, the, the term that is used to describe the believers is the term disciples. Um, and this is another way of saying Christians, but in the New Testament we find that that the believers always refer to either believers or as disciples. Christian is like an outside term um, of a way of referring people who follow Christ. But the, the writers of the um, New Testament refer to believers as disciples, people who are following after Jesus. And so what we see here in these days are people who are coming to faith in Jesus and not just believing, but they are following Jesus. They are following Jesus. Now, what happens in any organization or church when it grows is that you have to change your structure and that new issues are going to arise. And one of the problems we see coming is that the, the Hellenistic Jews are complaining that the Hebraic Jews are ignoring their widows when they're daily distributing food. And so, and so this, is, this is fascinating because um, 
the Hebraic Jews, they have a tradition of taking care of widows. This is one of the things that distinguish them among um, other people and people groups around them. In Deuteronomy 27, 19, it says, Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. You, and we even see in the New Testament, the Sadducees, they ask Jesus a question about, all right, so there's this woman and her husband dies, then the brother of the husband marries the widow, then the next bro- then he dies, then the next brother marries, and the next brother marries, and so on and so forth. And it's rooted in this in this rule or the way that the Jewish people lived is that they took care of widows. Because this is counter this is a countercultural movement in a time when women did not have rights and were dependent on their relationship to men. So you have these two groups of people. You have the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. They spoke different languages. The Hebraic Jews would uh, abide by the Torah and the Hellenistic Jews would not have much would not have put a much, as much stock in it. They are from different sides of the tracks. They spoke different languages. If we remember at Pentecost, one of the things that happens at Pentecost is the Holy Spirit comes down and one of the gifts that the disciples are given is they're able to speak in the native tongues of people who are there. And so you have these two groups of people who speak different languages from different sides of the track, have different experiences, and the Hellenistic Jewish women are being overlooked in the distribution of food. So let's see how the disciples respond to this. Verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Notice, the disciples understand their role and their mission. See, it's not that the issue is not important, but they are called to prayer and the ministry of the word. I think this tension exists for pastors and leaders um, in the church today, um, that, that sometimes our focus needs to be, we need to be reaching out, we need to be pouring into people, we need to be inv- inviting people and ministering to people. And sometimes, and sometimes we have to take care of stuff going on inside the doors and, and working on spiritual development and growth and leading people to walk closer to God. And sometimes there's this tension that do we spend all our time trying to reach out or do we spend all our time focusing on the people we already have and helping them grow closer to Christ. And so sometimes the temptation can be to focus on one or the other. And it's not that one is more important than the other, but we have to do both. And this is the tension that the disciples are facing. Do we spend all our time preaching the word of God? This is what we're called to, or are we to wait on tables? But what they also know is that there's something more going on. See, it's not just about widows not being taken care of. The disciples get to the thing behind the thing. They need leadership, but a specific kind of leadership. Notice what happens in verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parnias, 
and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, sometimes it's hard to notice in just reading it in our English translations, but there's something that these guys all have in common. They are all Greek. See, what the disciples realize is the problem is not widows getting food. That is a symptom of something deeper. There is a lack of leadership among the Greek believers. And I think it's interesting that Luke places this story, an introduction to Stephen, after the text we read last week. Right? The problem last week was the Sanhedrin was feeling threatened and power of their power and they were jealous and they beat the disciples trying to get them to submit. But notice what the disciples do when when their needs leadership. They distribute power um, and authority freely to qualified people. And what they see here is that the issue is not that these women are being overlooked, but there is a leadership problem. There is a leadership problem, and so we need to empower our Greek believers. And notice what happens here in verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I don't know if you read this, but sometimes it seems like Luke leaves out a detail, like an important detail. Remember what the original problem was? Was that these Hellenistic uh, Jewish widows were not being taken care of in the distribution of food. And Luke does nothing to address that, does he? But notice what happens when the disciples take care of the real issue, the heart issue. It's this leadership issue that the word of God spreads. And it doesn't just spread, but it spreads to some of the most unlikely people, priests. Priests are leaders. They have authority. They are respected. They have a following. This would put them at odds with the Sanhedrin and those invested in the temple system. And so what we see God doing is God blesses the disciples and the believers for dealing with the real issue, getting down to the heart, not dealing with the symptom that these, that the Greek Jewish um, widows were not being taken care of, but they get down to the heart of the issue and its leadership. They don't deal with the symptoms, they deal with the real issue, and that's the heart of leadership and where it's coming from. Are you guilty this morning of trying to manage symptoms rather than allowing God to change your heart? It seems scary, right? When we open up ourselves because what if God wants to change us? What if God wants to work on our heart and mold and shape us into something new, something different? See, oftentimes when we just manage symptoms we're not allowing God to change us we just want our behavior to change rather than the condition of our heart one of the ways that we justify dealing with symptoms is that we categorize them we categorize them we 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 call them spiritual and non-spiritual right you've heard people say oh well that's a spiritual issue and that's a non-spiritual issue well to a to the Hebrews, there was no word for spiritual. You can't separate your physical life 
and your spiritual life. It's all spiritual. It's, it's all there. And, I, and we, we actually believe this too. Believe it or not, um, when we read the Old Testament, when we read about the sin that David committed with Bathsheba, or, or when we read in Judges when Gideon takes payment for himself for the work that God has done, or, or in Exodus when Israel makes a golden calf to worship, or in Genesis when Eve eats because she is told she will be like God. These are physical acts, but we read them as spiritual conditions, don't we? We, we understand that these are spiritual things going on. David's sin with Bathsheba, it's a physical act, but it, it's spiritual. It's about the place where his heart is. When the woman eats of the tree that she is told not, and she is told she will be like God, that's a condition of the heart, isn't it? So the question is for us, why would we be any different? Why would we be any different? We read them in the, the stories in the Old Testament. We say, yes, those are spiritual. Those are issues. But maybe some of the things that go on in our life, they're not just physical issues. They're not non-spiritual issues, but it's all spiritual. It has to do with the condition of our heart. Why would we be any different? Our challenge as the people... As the people of God who are saved because of Christ's work on the cross is to allow God to speak to us, to shine light on our hearts and our fallen condition. Right? That's a challenge sometimes is to allow God to do that heart work, that real hard work and pruning of those things going in our lives that are holding us back. That are holding us back from the relationship that God desires for us to have with him. You see, the work done on the cross is not about symptoms, but it's about redeeming our sinful and fallen condition and returning us to the way God created us. When God created us, he said, man, this is good stuff. This is good work. See, when we settle for trying to cure symptoms, we minimize the work and redemption that is found at the foot of the cross. See, God's desire for us is not to just deal with and manage our symptoms, but he wants to transform our lives and change us and draw us closer to him because the life God has for us is better than any other life. Are you ready this morning to allow God to address the condition of your heart? Are there symptoms that you see? Are you, are you, are you sleeping too much? Not, not if you're the woman who... Uh, uh, that's how she's li- lived to be 117 years old. Maybe that's not a good example. Or are you, do you realize that your relationship with your spouse, there's dysfunction there? Does maybe it have to do with the condition of your heart? A few months ago, Sarah pointed out to me that oftentimes when I'm trying to get Rowan to do as I say is that I'm yelling and, and I, there's two types of yelling. There's the righteous yell, right? When, when you yell at your child because their lives are in danger, right? If you, um, and I've had to do this multiple times with my kids. Blah, blah, you just yell. I don't know if it makes any sense, but it sounds like blah, blah, blah. But we yell because their life is in danger and we want to protect them. But sometimes I found myself that I was yelling so that Rowan would hear me. And what I found as... As Sarah pointed this out, she's like, Andy, this isn't good. 
This is not the way we're supposed to talk with our kids. And as I, as I started to hand this over to God say, all right, God, deal with my heart. Why, help me to stop yelling. One of the things that God brought up in my life, one of the things that was kind of exposed when God really got down to the heart issue is that I was feeling like I was not being heard other places. And so the one place where I could make somebody listen, it was my five-year-old. So I was yelling. Are we going to allow God to change and transform our hearts? Because God's desire for us is to drastically redeem and restore and renew our lives. When Jesus was on the cross, or actually when Jesus was on trial, before he was on the cross, what was the crowd shouting? Crucify him, crucify him. Is that just, oops, oops, we misspoke, or is that a heart condition? God wants to deal with our hearts, and it's done on the cross. He redeems and restores, and he wants us to live a life that is a reflection of the life that he showed us as he walked this earth. He wants to transform you. He wants to shape you. He wants to... He wants to take your life and turn it upside down, and it's going to be better than you could ever imagine walking with the Lord. But we have to allow God to deal with our hearts. We have to hand it over to God and say, God, here I am. I am broken. I have fallen. Take it. Renew it, restore it. This morning, are you willing to give God everything? Are you willing to hand God your heart and allow him to work and transform? Let us go before the Lord.